January is when a lot of guys like to hunt. And that's like the start of the new tag. But the unit closure doesn't match that. So, I mean, guys are, they have their tag. It's the new calendar year. The reps really peak in some units, but yet you have units that are closed. Yeah. So it really does change your hunting strategy and down there. Deer typically would have to be pushed into areas where then they would breed. So it just, on average, the weather comes a couple weeks later up in the higher elevations to really consolidate and push deer to migrate. And then when they all come together, then boom, oh, okay, it's time to rut. And then it all depends. Like some years, if we get early weather, it seems to push that rut a little bit sooner in the higher elevations and around the state. So it's kind of weather dependent. You know, there's a lot of different variables, but I would say lower elevations and, and valley, it's around that second week of November. And then higher elevations, it's a week or two after that uh, is peak rut. Blacktail, generally speaking, are deer that don't follow patterns like we see with whitetail and mule deer. They're less patternable, but they will still be like guys bait deer every year and baiting's legal in Oregon. And so you can still get them that way. And a lot of times that pattern changes right about the time they strip their velvet. Mm -hmm. So it's an early opportunity is when you can get a deer to be patterned. After that, they pretty much go into hiding just like a mule deer would drop out of the high country and go into the timber. The same with the blacktail, they'll kind of go into a small grid area where they feel safe and a buck will basically stage and hang out and sometimes even in little bachelor groups until the rut takes place. When I go out into areas that are very, very low deer density, it does feel a little frustrating to see somebody else parked at the same spot, camped in a very similar basin or right off like a ridge line that you plan to hunt because you know, you're probably going after the same animal because there's just not that many. And that's the case in some of the areas I've hunted. And so like, if I was to hike into an area a couple miles just to get to the honey hole and see someone else right there in that same spot, it would be in my mind like, hey, this level of competition's not worth it. I didn't come all the way in here to compete with you. So mm -hmm. I'm probably gonna hike out and go somewhere else because it's, it's, it's unlimited, it's endless. Hey guys, real quick before we get into this episode, I need you to do me a couple of favors. First, go give us a review on iTunes. I can't stress it enough. It's really, really important for me to help keep this free and to help me keep it going. Next, get involved with your hunting rights. Go join Howl for Wildlife. Super simple. It takes a couple minutes. You can even do the free membership. I don't care, but be involved. Lastly, I want you to do yourself a favor and up your shooting game go get you some Phoenix shooting bags. Use promo code John Stallone to save 20%. That's all I got for you. Let's get into this episode. Hi, welcome to Days in Wild Big Game Hunting Podcast brought to you by Phoenix Shooting Bags. Today, we're going to talk to Nate Endicott or Nathan Endicott. And uh, we're going to pick his brain a little bit about blacktail hunting in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see where, where it goes. We might talk about mule deer. We might talk about elk. He's actually hunted uh, mule deer here in Arizona a couple times. And uh, yeah, what's going on, man? How are you? Yeah, doing well. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Um, yeah, as you said, I'm from uh, Oregon, Pacific Northwest, and hunting uh, blacktail is one of my favorite things to do. But Arizona, oh my gosh, I love that state. You're lucky. Um, <laughs> If I could get down there every year, I would. It's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, they've made it a little bit more difficult for you to come as an out-of-state person. 
it's uh, it's definitely affected my guiding business because that's where we did most of our guiding was the um, over-the-counter uh, archery hunts. And now, you know, if you don't plan way in advance to come go hunting, with, you can't do it because you have to buy the tag by a certain date and have that tag. So, like, right now, if you're like, oh, hey, I want to come hunting with you in August for the August season or in December, I'd have to say, well, do you have a tag already? And if you don't, sorry, you got to wait till next year because you can't just go purchase a tag anymore. But Yeah. There were some rapid changes, which was a little unfortunate. I got a letter, and the letter said the changes were coming. Mm-hmm. It just didn't announce exactly what to anticipate that there would be maybe a sellout of tags and not only that there'd be no other opportunities it just it left out a lot of detail and so i was out blacktail hunting so Mm. i mean my tag was available i was out hunting and then tags sold out when i was still hunting like i'd never even checked my emails and the email is where i think they emailed everybody to let let everybody know that tags were available now for sale Mm. on december 1st and yeah and it went quick and then there was the uh cap the was it the 10% right. this year of resident sales so yeah that yeah. was a surprise but um i guess i'll be ready for <laughs> yeah next time. yeah i mean like i said it adds another uh you know obstacle but uh, at the same time i know why they're doing it and i know why they're doing the quota thing and i advocated for it uh only cuz it yeah. was the lesser of the of the evils not because i really thought it was a great program and even more so now than ever i think it's not a great program um i think it tends to funnel you know let's let's put it this way if you're coming from out of state and you were planning on hunting you know unit 20b or whatever and you get here and 20b is closed where are you gonna go you're like okay well i'm just gonna go to the next closest open unit and it just starts people start funneling so as as units close other units get busier and busier and they close and you move you know it's like this kind of like causes a lot of crowding you know forces like a you know people are just not as spread out it's just we it's not it's not a good system i don't i don't like it i don't like it at all yeah. especially now having a couple of years in the bag with it but i just like yeah yeah so. no there's there's definitely that, and with the resident sales really being unchanged, I guess well, you're, you will see the most change with your non-residents being uh, restricted to that ten percent. And so there's a there's a lot less non-residents basically this coming calendar year. So mm-hmm. with with I'm I'm just curious how that plays out with your unit closures, you know, affect affecting kind of how it drives the hunting pressure and people bouncing around to units. There was a there's just a few I noticed in the north that closed out pretty quick. And then there's still a lot of opportunity around the state. But then again, January is when a lot of guys like to hunt. And that's like the start of the new tag. But the unit closure doesn't match that. So, right. So, right. yeah. So, I mean, guys are, they have their tag. It's the new calendar year. The reps really peak in some units, but yet you have units that are closed. Yeah. So, it really does change your hunting strategy down there. And I don't know all the ins and outs. I just, I mean, I've only hunted a couple of years, but. But enough that I mean I, I noticed and and I know it's a big change for many people. Yeah. So uh, what I think would be if they want to keep with this quota system, I feel like they have to have a quota for each season, not for the whole year. 
Oh, yeah. Because that way, you know, it eliminates that whole, oh, I just showed up and my unit's closed. Well, it doesn't eliminate it, but it definitely helps. I think it's, I think it's better. They have, you have a better way, better way to plan it, so on and so forth. But yeah. Anyway, Teak has talked. Let's, uh, you know, speaking about tags and so on and so forth. Now, I hunted Washington, not Oregon, but uh, years ago in, in the late season during the blacktail rut, which was like, I believe, in December or late November, something like that. Talk to me about late season deer hunting in Oregon. You know, what's the tag situation like? What time does it take place? What can a guy expect? Washington and Oregon are similar, but Washington is less opportunity. So in Oregon, well, and that kind of always, that depends because there's also a tag you could get just about every other year. That's an all season. So you can, you can hunt early, you can hunt the rifle and you can hunt the late tag with your bow. Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess it, it kind of depends. Like if you're from Washington, you can get the opportunity. If you're a non-resident, it's a little bit more expensive and you have to apply and get, get the tag as well. But Washington's a great state to kind of leverage along with, with Oregon for the black tail opportunity. In Oregon, we have an early and a late for our over-the-counter archery deer tag. The early season, it follows the same dates as our elk hunt. So mm -hmm. a lot of guys with bow focus on elk, and they're opportunistic with deer. So really, the archery hunt early, guys aren't really focusing on deer. used to be the case that the entire state was over-the-counter, with the exception of just a couple units. And so you can hunt mule deer with your bow early. And that was the advantage because it's open country. You could spot and stalk. It's way easier than trying to hunt a blacktail early. Mm -hmm. Blacktail lives in the timber or the thick coast. So unless you're baiting that deer or you know exactly where it lives and where it travels, you're probably not going to hunt early for it. So now with the changes, almost everything on the east side of the state is a draw tag. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take any points to draw. It's 100% guaranteed but you don't have that over-the-counter opportunity with that tag to hunt the whole state. And so you now, have to choose one or the other, right? No? no? Like you can't, yes. you can't go shoot a mule deer and then go try to shoot a blacktail, right? Exactly. It used to be the case that many of the hunts over east, if you drew them, it wasn't your only deer opportunity. So if you had an east side deer tag that you drew, it would roll over and allow you to kill a blacktail off that tag. For example, I drew a traditional tag several years ago and southeast corner of the state and i hunted for traditional deer and I, I wasn't really all that committed because i knew i had my blacktail opportunity afterward because that tag rolled over and it gave you the early and the late opportunity just the same but now it's that you are committed so um you are either going to be hunting a mule deer or you're hunting a blacktail if you hunt the over-the-counter deer tag it's almost all the west side units and you can hunt early and late with the same deer tag and the dates for the late hunt are generally the weekend before Thanksgiving. And then it goes for four weekends, three weeks, if I have that right. So usually around that second week in December, it closes. And this year, every all the dates got moved back. So for the first time in history, our elk hunt, the early hunt, is not the last weekend in August. It's actually the second of September. Hmm. So I, I can't think of a time in history where we've had a September opener for the elk hunt and the early deer hunt so then that also pushes back our late archery deer tag so it's no longer the weekend before thanksgiving now it's the weekend after which 
is a bummer because usually that Thanksgiving week, you have more vacation time, some Mm -hmm. holidays built in. It's more acceptable to take time off. And pushing it back a week just kind of limits your vacation opportunity. There's a part of the state, the southern units, that open one week earlier than than all the others. Mm-hmm. And so you could still hunt early with a bow the week the weekend before Thanksgiving, but that's a little bit different style of hunt down in the southern end of the state. And uh, it's kind of more, again, opportunistic. It's not quite the peak of the rut. Usually you have to get a lot of weather. The deer migrate more in the down the southern part of the state. Mm-hmm. And it's just a couple units. There's like two or three units. Yeah, I think three that open a week early. But that's kind of is a summary of the over-the-counter deer opportunity in sure. Oregon. Yeah. Now, when is, what would you say, the peak of the rut for the blacktail? It depends where you're at on the west side of the state. It, <laughs> the valley is always, so the lower elevations, and I call the valley basically the Whoa. lower elevations, and the Willamette Valley stretches nearly half of Oregon from the Eugene area up to Portland. So that and the coast, all of that area, the peak rut is around the second week in November. Yeah. That's peak rut. So it, as far as November 1st, you could have deer or bucks breeding does. Like it can happen. Um, it's kind of more isolated or sparse, but, mm-hmm. you know, but but it can happen. And so, yeah, the peak's probably around November 10th or 11th. And then as you move to the higher elevations, that's just consistent across the board in the whole state. You move to these higher elevations and the ruts push back like two weeks, three weeks for peak rut. And then- When you and say push you back, into, you mean it's it's earlier or later? Later. Later. later yeah okay. yeah higher elevations take place two to three weeks later for the rut hmm, that's and interesting see that yeah it seems very contradictive of what yeah. what i know of deer <laughs> right yeah i think it has to do with weather and when we get our big systems our big storms and then deer typically would have to be pushed into areas where then they would breed so it just on average the weather comes a couple weeks later up in the higher elevations to really consolidate and push deer to migrate. And then when they all come together, then boom, oh, okay, it's time to rut. Mm. And then it all depends. Like some years, if we get early weather, it seems to push that rut a little bit sooner in the higher elevations and around the state. So it's kind of weather dependent. You know, there's a lot of different variables, but I would say lower elevations and, and valley, it's around that second week of November. And then higher elevations, it's a week or two after that. Uh, is peak rut. Gotcha. Um, pre-rut is like the time to hunt because mm-hmm. all the deer are flying. And so that's always about a week and a half earlier than the peak rut. So gosh, I mean, it's just good. Like all the opportunity in Oregon, when we have our dates, it's pretty good deer activity, especially if you have weather, like, you know, a rain event, um, we'll really get deer moving some snow in the high elevation and our late archery deer hunt is what is starting to feel like it's later and later in terms of the rut. So you're starting around the peak. We have a muzzleloader hunt for some of the units too. Mm -hmm. And that's like prime time. So if you ever looked at the regs for muzzleloader, that is prime time. That is when you want to be out in the woods (laughs) hunting. And that seems like the muzzleloader tag got the best of all. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now on the over the counter, like, a guy could just show up and go buy a tag or once because I know with what is it with the elk uh, once the season starts you have to go to actual game and fish office you can't go to buy it from a dealer right yeah I've never done that myself 
all I know is that people have done that and told me about it. So if, if you were not able to get your tag before the start of any season date, mm-hmm. I believe that you can go to an ODFW office and you pay a fee and certify that you did not hunt yet and you can be issued a tag. I feel like they don't want to have to worry about people killing an animal right. and punching their tag the same sure. day. So they make it maybe a little bit harder than just buying it online because that's the way our, our regs work is that you could just buy online and you can have uh, e-tagging. Mm-hmm. So you could just open up your phone and just tag the animal the minute you shoot it with your phone and also have your tag right away. You don't have to worry about getting a tag mailed. So I just hunted Idaho spring bear and I bought a tag, one of the reduced tags, and it took three and a half weeks. The season had closed and I got my tag in the mail. Oh, um, and so the way I hunted it is that I drove over and you could buy two tags so I actually had to go to point of sale, buy my tag the night before we were planning to hunt. And then we got out and hunted for three or four days. But I bought two tags <laughs> because I just I didn't think it would take three and a half weeks to get my pair tag. So other states like California, too, you can opt to pick up in person or have it mailed. And they they're pretty clear about their timeline. So yeah. um, I got my tag in time with California Blacktail. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's just one of those things. Oregon's nice is that you just buy online and boom, it's on your phone. You're ready to go. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I've been, man, I've been wanting to get back up there and me and Blacktail will, Blacktail and Rosie, I, something about the Pacific Northwest period just, just doesn't like me. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've, I've killed a couple Blacktail now, but they're, they're, I mean, little like, you know, forkies and shit like that. Like nothing, yeah, nothing crazy. Um, and, I've been I've hunted California a lot actually for blacktail, but Oregon I've only been once, and um, and Washington I was there once also. Yeah. I mean I had I had a blacktail tag in my pocket when I was elk hunting in Oregon I believe once or twice, but that's also another thing elk man I've unfortunately wounded two elk that I didn't recover and I had a lot of opportunity to kill elk and I didn't. It was, uh, it's just one of those things like, you know, creating opportunities. I went with some of the best elk guy, guys I know that know Rosie's better than anybody. And that's, uh, guys from Angry Spike. I hunted with them and created opportunities that just couldn't make it happen. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of cursed in the Pacific Northwest for whatever reason. Dang it. Yeah. It, it could be hard. Uh, <laughs> management is like, always on my mind when you talk about how hard it is it's like how organs manage that's one two is our predator situation it's not managed very well there and then three is that if you're on the west side it's brushy and so you said create your opportunity yeah i mean you probably had obstructions in the way at times you're Mm -hmm. really trying to pick your shot and the animal's doing what it's going to do right it's not going to stay on their broadside all day so i mean when you say like your experience that's what we face and and so it takes a lot of work on the West side to be successful. And some guys do it like every year on the West side and yeah. I'm super impressed by them. But growing up here, I've always gone to the East side because it alleviates that headache. Mm-hmm. Generally, you know, it's open. It's kind of like Arizona and some of the parts of the state where we just have sparse juniper and uh, rolling kind of rolling sage and, and you can get out and crawl up on elk or, you know, we do have some brushy areas. I had a, Northeast Oregon, Winaha elk tag a couple years ago. And it's just like the Oregon coast, pretty thick, really steep, but still 
you're in timber that's big and open and you can get a shot off without worrying about all the brush, the low, the low brush. Yeah. It's all that jungle, (laughs) all that rainforest crap that you run into on the West, on the West coast stuff. Yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty brutal. I, I, I love it though. Like, I mean, I've had some amazing experiences. I've seen some great elk and really I got nothing to blame but myself. I just, you know, I think it's when you want something so bad, you tend to, or at least I tend to, you know, force things or do things that are probably, you know, and I kind of get in my own head, I guess. But that's a, that's a story for another day. I, uh, I got a couple more questions yeah. on the, on, actually, I'm going to, I'm thinking we're, we're going to stick with this, uh, this subject anyway, cause it, it's, it's interesting to me and I want to definitely do it here. I, I might even try to sneak over there this year, but I don't think it's going to happen yet. Let's talk about the deer behavior on the West coast stuff. Am I wrong? Is the West stuff a little bit more accessible as a public land hunter than the stuff on the East? It's a good question. Um, no, it's about the same in my opinion. Okay. Um, yeah. A lot of really big animals know where the refuge is uh-huh. and that's private, private land. Oh yeah. Of course, and then, but... so yeah, both East side, West side, it's pretty similar. And we have a ton of public land in Oregon as a whole. Yeah. And so sometimes the public land feels a little crowded because everybody knows where the deer will then where they live on the public land. And we have a lot of then vast, open, untouched space that doesn't really have the, the numbers on the west side i guess it would be more dispersed because it's thick and some places that are really remote and hard to access are going to always stay that way and that's why it's good mm-hmm. so like with me with blacktail hunting i'm putting in a little bit extra effort and miles then i'm turning up game and uh and it's successful for me so yeah that's a that's a tough one to answer i'm sure everybody would have a different opinion on that but some parts of the state, there's a lot more private ground mm-hmm. and that makes it harder. So like when I said the southern end of the state too, a lot of the biggest deer live on private or on the fringe of private. There's a lot of private ground down mm-hmm. in the southern southern end. But then as you come north, we have some more mountainous terrain and, uh, and there's a lot of public land. And then all the way to the very north, there's a lot more private land again. But so many people, all of our population really is like the northern part of the state. So from Eugene, Salem, Portland, mm-hmm. that's where all the population's at. So less public land up there, of course, but we still have our Cascade and Coast Range. Mm-hmm. And and then talking about private, I should mention too, we do have a lot of private timber company. Yeah. And over the years, that seems to always change on access, permitting, fees, who's allowed to hunt, who's not, and when because of a uh, fire danger. So fire danger has become more and more of a thing over the past 10 years. So the land that's private timber is shut down until we get those storms. So a lot of the elk hunt, you might like the early season, you may not be able to hunt a permit uh, that you purchased for mm. hunting timberland. And so the late deer hunt, usually there's so much rain that all the ground is open. So you're able to hunt. Um, but yeah, that just kind of gets into it's, you know, more it's on funny to hear somebody talk about it being dry in Oregon because I've never been there and not yeah. been absolutely soaked the whole time I was there. Yeah. <laughs> I was just actually texting with, with back and forth with uh, Shannon. And he's like, yeah, if you come back out, make sure you don't bring the rain. Because <laughs> he knows every time I've been there, it's been like miserable. Just, well, I'm in rain gear the whole time. 
Yeah. No, I mean, honestly, everybody's like, no, come then, because if you bring the rain, that's a good thing. <laughs> it means it means we can hunt more. Uh, some of the Northeast Oregon stuff, there's one particular unit that guys, like, it's, it's a fairly easy to draw tag. It's one of the better elk hunting units in this whole state. Mm. And uh, it's still fairly easy to draw, so I won't say it. And um, a lot of that unit is private timber. Hmm. And that's all shut, that's shut down a lot of the years based on the fire danger. And if, until we get some rain and so guys really like, it's a, it's like a risk for them to draw that tag on the year they get it and hmm. not be able to hunt. Got it, that got it, got it. Yeah. So, so there is a lot of like strategy to it. And like on a year where we think it will be more wet or more dry and pull on a big tag that, you know, a lot of timber company land might be shut down. So yeah, we like the rain. <laughs> so bring it, bring it on. Yeah. It's good. It's good for hunting too. Like the black tailed deer, it seems like they hang tight until we get a weather system and then they just lose their minds and they're like, Hey, we're happy. And they run around and get shot. So that's like, <laughs> it's, it's good hunting when we get some weather. Yeah, I bet. I, I heard hunting them in the snow over there is actually really good. But when you guys yeah. get it, well, let's talk a little bit since we're kind of on this line, let's talk a little bit about deer behavior. Uh, give me some yeah. behavioral characteristics of blacktail that you can count on, like, and how you use that to your advantage to score a buck in the late season. Blacktail, generally speaking, are deer that don't follow patterns like we see with whitetail and mule deer. They're less patternable, but they will still be like guys bait deer every year, and baiting's legal in Oregon. And so you can still get them that way. And a lot of times that pattern changes right about the time they strip their velvet. Mm -hmm. So it's an early opportunity is when you can get a deer to be patterned. After that, they pretty much go into hiding, just like a mule deer would drop out of the high country and go into the timber. The same with the blacktail. They'll kind of go into a small grid area where they feel safe. And a buck will basically stage and hang out. And sometimes even in little bachelor groups until the rut takes place. And then it's like they just lose their minds. And blacktail too, they're more likely to stand and watch you walk by them than run. So hmm. like a mule deer will classically run, stop, turn around and look at you then. Whereas a blacktail, it could be like really close and just hang out. It won't move. It'll just watch you because it maybe feels safe in its cover and you'll be able to walk by. So that kind of plays out well for archery hunters. If you're sneaking around slow in the woods and you happen to catch that movement of like an ear flick or something, that blacktail might be holding its ground because it feels safe and you can load an arrow or pull your rifle up or whatever you're doing and be able to shoot the animal pretty close distance before it's run, before it runs away. So that's kind of a tendency too that a lot of guys don't know about with blacktail. You think like, oh shoot, it's going to run any second. I don't even have an opportunity. And well, you got to just start making your move. And then when we get in the rut, they just like, they kind of go dumb. A lot of, a lot of the bucks, you know, that we see go dumb. not whitetail, whitetail are always switched on, but mm. blacktail, blacktail like seem to lose their minds a little bit. If there's a hot doe, they won't leave her. And so you could basically know that if the doe is slightly dumb, you're going to kill the buck. If the doe's smart, then you're going to have a harder chance. But yeah, so that's generally speaking, our blacktail deer, they can be rattled in and that could be a really effective method. Sometimes they come in very slow and cautious. And I think a lot of that has to do with it. If the buck's been rattled before, or if it's an older buck, they'll come in a little bit more cautious. And then 
sometimes they'll just fly right in and you can hardly even get your bow up in time and they're already running out. So mm. it's kind of all over the place, but, but rattling's effective calling. I've used a can call. It's like a little, you know, the pre can calls. Yeah. yeah little dobly. Yep. But I don't tip it. I blow on it and it helps me control the sound. And I really like doing that because it feels like it's more of a passive calling method where it might not spook the animal and it might make the curiosity peak in a buck to come in and check me out as opposed to rattling. It's more active and it's more aggressive and it might might push animals away rather than bring them in if it's just not their thing. If that buck doesn't want to check it out or if it didn't sound right, you know, he might just run away. So I do like doe bleeding as opposed to rattling when I'm by myself, especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hunt by myself most of the time. I'm I still hunt. My method is like a still hunting blacktail in the timber. I don't call hardly ever. I mostly just like the the suspense and the awe of not knowing where I'm headed necessarily. I'm just following sign. And when I see something move, like it's game time. And that's how I, I just prefer it. It's just like for fun. That's the way I hunt. There's probably ways to do it different and be more successful. But I don't I don't care about that really. I just, I like yeah, the I mean, whatever floats your boat, man, you know? And that's yeah. kind of the way, honestly, I prefer to hunt that way too. When I first really started bow hunting here in Arizona, that's how I hunted most of the time was just still hunting because I didn't really know what glassing and spot and stalk was coming. I, I, you know, moved here from the East coast and, you know, we hunted out of tree stands or we still hunted. And yeah. Still hunting to me. Well, one, it allowed me to learn a lot of ground. You know, you, you spend more time walking around and searching new terrain and so on and so forth. You, you start learning it a lot better than, you know, looking at it through your binos. But I'm not very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, I know guys that are really, really good at it. But, yeah. uh, but I, and I think it's more of a product. I feel like I'm getting worse and worse at it, but it's a product of my, uh, my eyesight going as I'm getting yeah. older here. I'm just not picking up animals faster than, than they're picking me up. Yeah. So, but the yeah. other thing to leverage though, is like, as you age while you're losing, it's like, just like your senses, as you lose one sense, another sense might pick up and take over and help out. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're start. You know your country is so much better because you've been there, you've done it. You know where the deer typically like to bed, or where they, where you've caught a move in before. Or it's like every time you're there, you just know that a buck's going to be bedded behind that tree, under that rock, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it's like while your eyesight sucks, it's like you just know to pull your binos up and be like, "Yep, I was right. I've been here before." So that's what I do like too about building on the experience and and your hunting areas and really knowing places intimately and just the ins and outs you feel so comfortable there since it's like basically part of it's like it's like your property it's public land and so it's it's like it's yours and you Mm -hmm. just own it and know it so well but um so that's one thing what part of uh the east coast are you i was born in brooklyn i lived in long island until i moved out here i still hunt not every year but almost every other year i'm going actually i'll be there this year in october early october Uh, so I'll do some, I'll do some hunting. It's like right at the beginning of the season opens like that week. So it's, yeah. you know, it's not the greatest hunting at that time of year. Um, yeah. 
uh, especially if you're not there running trail cameras and stuff, which I am not. So I have to, you know, rely on my past experiences and where I know elk are elk close to me, deer travel. And, um, so, you know, we'll see. I've, uh, I've never not shot something. <laughs> so, you know, uh, there's that. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> wow. That's so how many years is that? Oh, I mean, I'm 47. Um, I started hunting when I was five. So I've. You got a couple. You got a couple. Quite a few. <laughs> I mean, I would say that, so that, that statistic of me not shooting something, uh, yeah. that started, I w- I'm going to say probably 16, 17 years ago. Okay. Yeah. Cause, um, yeah, it was when I started, first started dating my wife, I started hanging, uh, hunting out, uh, on Eastern Long Island a lot more, uh, where beforehand I would hunt in upstate New York, which is like in the Adirondacks and stuff. And Eastern Long Island, her family's from the Hamptons or lives in the Hamptons. And, uh, so I would go out there and, it's it's diff, very different hunting, you know. You're hunting very small tracts of land um, between homes and you know whatever. And it's just it's it's better in certain ways because you know deer have to use certain things like certain funnels and structural stuff. But uh, in a lot of ways, it's a lot. It's hard because you're always <laughs> you know you're always fighting to find the spot to hunt. So um, yeah, can you? Can you hunt? So I know that in some states, like even Arizona, mm-hmm. um, you can hunt areas that are wildlife preserves or not refuges, but well, sometimes even yeah, refuges. refuges. Yeah, yeah. Is that the same out there where they offer a limited duration archery only kind of opportunity? Yeah, and, and you'll find that that to be true with most states. Will have that. You know, they'll yeah. have very specific seasons, very specific limited weapon type things. Yep, but. A lot of a lot of the East Coast states are are that way because there's not a lot of public land, so they have to yeah you exactly. know give you opportunity in, in other ways. Um, yeah, I've I've See, hunted all over the Eastern Seaboard, and you know I've never really had a hard time. I shouldn't say had a hard time finding things. I would find them, but once you know once you find the the ground, it's or figure out the system. It's not that hard to find ground. Yeah. So coming from a place like. Oregon, Mm -hmm. where it's all basically public land, don't even, it's like almost a joke to go to a wildlife refuge because it'll probably be worse hunting. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it doesn't even cross our minds to figure out what are the special regulations for that area. Um, Unless you had some, like it, it was close by your house and you really wanted to know it well. So that's where guys that come from areas like this, where there's no public land, you really had to maximize your opportunity and leverage those types of hunting opportunities. And then you move to a place like Arizona where you have both, right. you might be able to do pretty well when just having that edge to look into areas that some guys may overlook. And hundred uh, percent. It's made yeah. it's made it's made me a much more effective hunter because I'm used to the combat hunting. Like seeing other people doesn't bother me because yeah. I mean I shouldn't say it doesn't bother me. It does bother me. Like it does like I <laughs> shit, ah, that guy's here too. You know? Yeah. But at yeah. the same time, I know, oh, I mean, I don't know. I think at least in my head, I could out hunt this person. And yeah. I know 
I know this land very well, or whatever the case may be. I've, I've showed up places I've never even been to and been successful uh, just applying basic principles of, of hunting. But the, uh, well, I've been hunting here in Arizona since I'm, since 91. You know, I've, I've been living here since 1991. So I've got 30 years experience here in the West Coast or in the West, not West Coast. But, but like I said, I go back East all the time. And that, that idea that you're sharing a small amount of land with a, a large number of people, normally those, they limit the amount of people that can use it, but it's still more per acre than you're used to, you know, hunting out here uh, in the West. So, but it gives you, I think it gives you a huge advantage. So, yeah. Yeah. I could see that for sure. Just with the limited amount of like out of state hunting I've done in areas where it's like, I've, I've been to Texas to hunt whitetail before and there's like zero public land. And so, yeah, I mean, you, and then Arizona, of course, another place where it's a little different too. And that if it's in Arizona, you could technically be on private if it's not posted. Is that, mm-hmm. yeah. And some places, that, yeah. But, I mean, I mean yeah. well, that's the rule anywhere, but way, but there's, some of this there's thing. a lot of private land too. That is, um, you know, they have access, foot access for you to go. But Arizona is actually what I think number two or number three in the whole country for public land. I yeah, think, I think we're like exactly. 80, so, eighty something percent. Yeah, it's, it's so you don't even need to even consider it really for yeah. a lot of people. But um, but yeah, that's just another thing to that's interesting. And um, see, when I go out into areas that are very very low deer density, it does feel a little frustrating to see somebody else parked at the same spot, camped in a very similar basin, or right off like a ridge line that you plan to hunt because you know you're probably going after the same animal because there's just not that many and and that's and that's the case in some of the areas of hunted and so like if i was to hike into an area a couple miles just to get to the honey hole and see someone else right there in that same spot it would be in my mind like hey this level of competition's not worth it. I didn't come all the way in here to compete with you. So mm-hmm. I'm probably going to hike out and go somewhere else because it's 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 unlimited. It's endless. But some areas where you know there's a lot of game and it's it, you just have to put in your time and hunt hard. I don't mind seeing people. It happens all the time. I'm constantly crossing paths with people. There's multiple trucks at the trailhead, but I just know there's a lot of game and if I'm persistent, it's going to work out for me. But you see that play out too. Do you still watch Outdoor Channel and and shows like that? You know what? I don't anymore. And I don't know if you know this know this about <laughs> yeah. me or, or not. But I I own the Hunting Channel online, or, and uh, I was like oh. one of the original guys that oh, uh, that started like online TV shows and stuff. So I migrated away from watching those a while ago. But I yeah. would still keep my eye on things just to keep mainly to recruit shows on the platform but um yeah now i don't even i mean it my that website is sitting there with dormant at the moment um i shut down the whole membership side of it and all that because i mean it's a long story but i um yeah to answer your question short in a short way no i don't watch hunting tv at all really i might watch a, yeah. i might watch a little uh you know like a a short film or something like that on YouTube now, but um, I really don't uh, watch anymore because a lot of that had to do with the fact that I lost, 
I used to watch that stuff because I wanted to learn something. Yeah. And even if that was a learn about a different opportunity. And now, because of the way that business model is to have a TV show, it's created a bunch of snake oil salesmen and it's created a big, like, it's just not realistic to me anymore. So, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I'm sorry, you were going to say what going with that. No, yeah, that's interesting. I haven't, you know, there's, there's a lot to that. My dad and I recently were having similar conversations. Um, so yeah, that's interesting, but yeah, where I was going with it is, um, one of my favorite, well, the one I I'm consistently watching and it's at my in-laws have cable. So I go there mm. and I, I watch their DVR. So I like binge watch all my favorites, but, um, my favorite is the Western hunter, Nate Simmons, of course. And, and Nate Simmons is a good friend of ours. He's mm-hmm. hunted with us. We did Kodiak together a few years back. And so um, I like watching Nate and I like watching him on the Western Hunter. I think his production with Randy is awesome. Yep. And uh, it's one of my favorites. But Chris, Chris Denham is a good friend of mine, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, of course. He's in Arizona. But Nate, and I, I've experienced it firsthand with him with Bear. He doesn't like bears. He, <laughs> he shows it on his on his episodes. He hates, absolutely hates bear, but also he doesn't like hunting pressure. And, um, I think it's probably that same thought is like, I came all the way in here. I didn't want to come in here to compete with somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you see that play out a lot in some of his films and, um, and it it just, it crosses my mind. And I would say that for, for him, of course he doesn't, he doesn't want to be around somebody else when he puts in that effort. For me, I'm okay with it. I'm comfortable with it. I'll probably go talk to him and say, Hey, if you don't mind, we're both we're gonna both struggle in here um because i just i love this spot it's a beautiful area and i just want to hunt it um right so i don't know being optimistic about it so yeah a little bit of a tangent but i guess that's all i was gonna say yeah it's just uh you see it play out a lot with like the western hunter and 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 that's all across the west and it's every year every state we're experiencing it more and more so it's kind of like you got to rise you know overcome versus Mm -hmm. just like get mad about it or yeah. Yeah. We, we got to stop the whole bickering about, uh, <laughs> you know, because yeah. it's, it's, they're finding more and more ways to take it away from us. So, and they love the infighting. You know, I say they, the, the, those who do not want hunting to succeed, they love the fact that we infight about everything. We bicker yeah. amongst, amongst ourselves so much that it's, there's no unity and it's not, it's something that you don't see on the other side of the fence. Like the save the polar bears people do not fight with the save the whales people. They're yeah, they're always in lockstep in some way or shape or form. And you don't see that in Arizona or excuse me, in Arizona. You don't see that in hunting. I started reading a question that I was going to ask you. Um, and it's funny like because you don't see like – you know, the elk guys are about the elk stuff. The deer guys are about the deer stuff. And the duck guys are about the duck. You know, it's like nobody's like, there's no, there's no real, no real community. And it's, it's frustrating. But yeah, again, you know, That's, my listeners have heard me bitch about that at, at nausea. Okay. So, you know, <laughs> but, well, okay. Then I won't, I won't go there necessarily, but that is, that hits the head on exactly what like I'm very passionate about is trying to bring hunters and people together when who have common interests. And so 
my most recent film I made was Arizona mm -hmm. and I do a little bit of voiceover, which I, I kind of like cringe when I even say the word voiceover, mm -hmm. but, <laughs> but I felt, I felt like it was needed because it helps explain to people why I'm doing this, uh, in the first place, why I make hunting films. Cause I make like really short hunting films, make them concise to the point. And I like to showcase the beauty of like all the things I see while I'm hunting. But the other piece to it is that I want to inspire people to come together as hunters and one of the things I say in the, towards the end of the film is that hunting is not a right in many of the states. Uh, mm -hmm. There's fishing rights and hunting rights that you can look into across all the states. And some states have them and some states don't. So if it's not a right, it could go to a public vote eventually and things could change. So I like to point that out in that hunters need to work together. And we need to focus on the common unity, as you said, mm -hmm. and also just focusing on that, that would be just stop there. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Have you heard of Howl for Wildlife or how you and I talked about it? I don't even remember. We talked about it very briefly. Okay. And where I first saw it was through a buddy who shared a link online. And I think it was months ago. I want to say it either it was, uh, did it have to do with wolves in Oregon? Mm. Um, More than likely. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, that was the first I saw of it, and I clicked the link and did a little bit of reading. And then recently, you know, you you shared a link with me, and I yep. guess like I just don't know enough about it to really share because I when I, I guess I was looking for something that really just laid out how to be involved if it's not through like a financial participation because yeah, like so, well, there, that's not actually what Alpha Wildlife asks for. I mean, we need yeah. financial participation to keep the platform running, so. I'm sure my listeners already know this because I've, again, ad nauseum. But yeah. um, so for you to know, the main thing about Halfal Wildlife, our main objective is to connect the hunters and anglers with the decision makers on policy, rulemaking, so on and so forth, that affects wildlife management and hunting and fishing directly. So. Yeah. You go there. That's why we offer a free membership. There's no, mm. we have paid memberships and pay with different membership programs that we would love you to take on. But we never said, oh, because you don't want to give us money, you can't be involved. We we have a you know you just sign up, put your name, email, address in there, and you are a you're a member. You're you got the free member. You don't get any of the benefits or you know perks of having a membership, but you still can be involved. So now a bill pops up in you know in Oregon, and they're trying to do away with snipe hunting, and uh, you're opposed to it. You go on there and you just put your you know, you go to that action in our action center and you go to that action and you put your name and your address in there. And there is a pre-drafted email and it's not just a canned email. It's an email that like this last thing in, that's going on right now in Washington with, uh, yeah. with the wolves, we, we drafted 10,000 emails. So it randomizes one of those 10,000 emails or it gives you the option to write in your own. You can just erase everything that's there and write in your own. And uh, it's super powerful. We have a, the highest opening rate of any, you know, email that gets sent out to a politician. Wow. Uh, in, in, in any industry. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty fantastic. 
platform and it works really well, but it only works when people get involved. So like, yeah. you know, somebody like you just said, you're like, oh, I read it a little bit, but I didn't know what to do. So if we're not making it clear to you what you need to do, then obviously we need to do some things better. But there's so many people that don't want to get involved in something. It's just like you and I were talking about earlier. People don't want to get involved into something that doesn't directly affect them. So one thing that we should all know about hunting is that, and especially public land hunting, is that we're all paying to the same pot. We're all in it together. You can go to any state and hunt just like you know, yes, you may be paying higher fees or whatever, and some rules might be a little different for you as an out-of-state person, but you have the right to hunt there. And I say right, you have the ability to hunt there because like you said, yeah. right, right's a slippery slope. Some places we don't actually have rights to hunt and fish, but it's a, what do you call it? A, uh, my God, my brain's not working. What's that word? <laughs> a privilege. Um, yeah. Anyway, so we're all in this together. So the guy that's in New York that whitetail hunts should care about the guy in Oregon who elk hunts. You may never go to Oregon and hunt elk and the guy in Oregon may never go to New York and hunt whitetail, but you should be getting involved in each other's stuff. And this this constant battle uh, for us to get people to understand, okay, there's we're trying to get rid of wild horses in Arizona. You guys in Oregon can get involved in it. Just like the guys in Arizona can get involved in the wolf situation there in Oregon. Like, yeah. It's crazy because it's so simple. It literally takes 30 seconds for people to do. And we've been able to move mountains. We have like, uh, I don't even know, 40,000 users of the website, something like that. Yeah. And on any given action that we have, we get 10% of the people, you know, yeah, to actually good. to actually work on it, which, which is not really a lot. So you're talking about 4,000 people, okay? 4,000 people are able to change the minds of decision makers on policy. Now, let me explode this out. We're 16 million hunters in the United States. Could you imagine if 10% of the 16 million would get involved? That's 1.6 yeah. million, right? Okay. Yeah. Would, Could you imagine it, if all 16 million people get involved? We'd never lose we'd never lose hunting again. And it literally takes 30 seconds. Okay. I'm off my high horse. <laughs> it gets yeah. me very heated. <laughs> you no, know, I, I get it. Um, so my dad, he's like very, very passionate too about very similar concepts. And so he actually is VP, I believe, of Oregon Outdoor Council, which is, is mm -hmm. very, very similar. And also being able to draft emails and send it to uh, lawmakers or people that are commissioners on the um, fish and wildlife. And so I participated through that and mostly am familiar with some of the things they're doing. But it's very or it's Oregon Outdoor Council, you know, mm -hmm. not like yeah. not nationwide, right. which, which I do really like that perspective because, um, yeah, it it influences everybody based on how we respond and how we communicate and show hunting. So something in Oregon could impact something in Washington very, very easily in terms of uh, the species and how it's hunted, even though it's separate states, separate laws. There's people don't know that. Mm -hmm. And all it does is it takes, 
you know, the wrong message to be the wrong narrative to be communicated. So, so that's where I think it's important to have organizations like this that are really helping people understand the, the common, the narrative that we believe is the best for hunting as a whole and, uh, and really having that buy-in. So, so that's neat. Yeah. I appreciate that. And in Oregon, we've seen it with the federal fishing game introducing, um, wolves. That's not a gray wolf really. And bloodline, it was, um, a different bloodline than was always existing in Oregon and then mm-hmm. reintroducing that, that basically new species into Oregon. And we've seen huge changes and it's not been fun. And so that's something that's like, yeah, it's a, it's a hot topic here in Oregon. Oh yeah. Um, Oregon so. and Washington have been on the hot seat for the last two years. Yep. Crazy, 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 crazy. Anyway, I want to take us back to what we were, <laughs> what we were originally talking about yeah. because I, I talk about this stuff crazy amounts of day, time yeah, and sure. days, and I don't want to, one, I don't want to bore my, uh, yeah. and it shouldn't bore them, but. But they've okay. heard it, so they're, they're it, skipping. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, let's go back to, to Blacktail here. Uh, what, what, you know, we were talking about it before we kind of went off on a tangent. What type of habitat are you looking for? Like, what are you, what's your favorite habitat to score uh, blacktail bucking? It is big open timber. Like, the, just what it is, that's what I love to hunt. I can mm. see far, I can make, I can stalk slowly, the timber cover. The, so, that's like to cut right to the answer. Mm-hmm. Now, if I was to say like Arizona, there's such a diversity in that desert. And it's desert. Like our desert has kind of low diversity. We have high desert and low desert, and um, and there's a little bit of diversity in the vegetation and terrain. But when I go to Arizona, I mean, it is all over the place, depending mm-hmm. on what unit you're in. And so um, I'd say that's comparable to Oregon, is that we have coastal, cascade, in between, valley, and depending on the elevation and how close you are to the coast or how far away you know, how much rainfall north mm-hmm. to south, but they're all black-tailed deer, like on that west side. So you really do get to pick the habitat that you prefer to hunt, even though there's deer across the whole thing. And there's bigger deer, like bigger bodied, bigger antlered in certain areas that could be less desirable, maybe more desirable. Mm-hmm. So in Oregon, um, the what I like to hunt is this big, open, sometimes old growth timber on public land and we have a lot of it national forest wilderness blm state land there's a ton of public land so yeah now on the yeah i there there's stuff um that's pretty close by like easier stuff to hunt and it's it usually involves uh logged units so mm-hmm. when you remove the tree cover now we open up a ton of open ground for really good vegetation and that's how a lot of guys most guys hunt either burns or, or log units or yeah, that's so clear cut. Yep. Log unit clear cut because they could see the animal. They could spot in stock or glass mm-hmm. and spot longer ranged rifles, uh, allow for making a lot of that more successful. So yeah, I don't do that. I think it's, it's kind of gets into that competition thing. And some guy sometimes there's like four trucks at a, at a gate and mm-hmm. you get out there and they're like, Hey, we were first in line. So you're welcome to hang out here, but but we're going to shoot the first buck that is visible. So there's stuff like that. And I don't really care to be involved with it, but that's just like the local, if I drive up above my house, that's, that could be what I get into. Um, so yeah, I do travel a ways and I hike a ways in and I really get after it 
Uh, so yeah, big open temper. Sweet. All right. I got one more question for you and then I'm going to ask you to share your favorite Blacktail story with us. Okay. What would you say is the most or the three most critical factors that contribute to your success? All right. Three most critical factors contributing to my success. So I've already kind of alluded to how I hunt. Mm-hmm. So that's still hunting. So it really kind of narrows it down. I would say fitness, physical fitness mm-hmm. is one of the biggest key factors contributing to my success because I'm willing to go and I don't let my brain say that this is too far. It just doesn't occur to me that it's too far until after I've after you've killed it, you gotta <laughs> you gotta pack it out. <laughs> yeah, when I when I have it on my back, that's when I'm deciding. Man, that was too far, but I forget about it conveniently before the next time. So okay, so like yeah, just being physically capable and having that mental drive. I guess you can't teach that to everybody. Sometimes it's learned. Sometimes it's appreciation for the ability to do that because not everybody gets that ability. Every day is a gift. We get to maximize that gift and uh, live to the fullest. Mm-hmm. So the second thing would be that while I'm still hunting, I am going to be hunting in the best spot at the best time based on the conditions and all the factors that are going on. And that is very much learned. So mm-hmm. I've, I've scouted, I've spent years hunting in different areas. I know that if it's similar terrain to what I've been successful in before, it's probably going to happen here. So I know when to pump the brakes, go slower, scan more, look for the right sign fresh sign, um, hunting like snow lines above snow line, below snow line, when to do it, elevations, slope exposures, all that stuff. That's like, you want to take all those variables into account and get there at daylight prime time and hunt as committed as you can during that prime time. And then when things are dead or it's a horrible storm or things like that, you can change up your method, which is like being on point, ready to go. So So I would say it's just taking in all those factors and putting yourself in the right spot, hanging out there as long as possible. Now now I have a bunch of questions about what what factors matter, but that's okay. We'll get into that next time. We'll have you on. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. That was number two. And then, um, gosh, I usually, I mean, I think that those two things probably covered all being good with your bow, being good with your weapon, Mm -hmm. like don't letting down your guard. A lot of times somebody will just like have a rough day or spook a deer and say, shoot, that was my only opportunity and kind of start to pout. And then you take 10 steps and boom, that was the biggest buck of your life. You just spooked and, uh, (laughs) because you were just, you know, upset. So, so that would be the other one is like, just be resilient. Never say no, don't ever quit. Like just always be after it. So that, that helps me be successful each year. And I've been successful for the, for, uh, since 2011, um, with my, with my black tail hunt. Beautiful. Um, well, that's awesome. Yeah. So. Hell yeah. All right. Well, if you could share with us your either your favorite blacktail story or a story where you learned something about blacktail hunting, kind of changed the way you you hunt, or you know you had like a aha moment type thing, one of those would be great. Yeah, uh, I've told a couple stories before that, so I probably just won't pick those, but they've involved like my wife and hunting with her. And having just incredible days, but this story hasn't necessarily been fully told. And it's just this last two seasons and it builds on what you said earlier about trying to remember here exactly how you phrased it, but I had a lot of pressure on myself in 2021 to be successful on a good buck. Mm -hmm. And I put, I put a lot of pressure on myself 
And I had a couple opportunities that didn't work out. I had one instance where a broadhead kind of deflected weird. I hit a bone and, and I was shoot mechanicals and it deflected up and uh, off the back of a buck. And it was a great big four, four by three. And I get one of my better bucks. And, uh, and I knew right away from trailing it that it was just like just a muscle hit and there was no, there was nothing, um, vital about the hit. I super bummed. I trailed it to last blood and I gritted for the rest of the day, which was like five hours. And just, I was going off some tracks for a while and just knew that that buck was going to be fine. But that, and that resulted in me in the next opportunity shooting a, a smaller, younger buck. Um, and, and I felt like just this need to like be done because I had struggled really hard and I just wanted it so badly. And sometimes when we add that added pressure on ourselves, it, we really just overlook the fact that this is a gift. We get to be out here and mm -hmm. enjoy this. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, Hey, I'm just going to enjoy the moment. I do get to be out here. When you get to the top of a mountain, nobody can take that away from you. So that happened in 2021 going into 2022. And I made a film of this hunt. I basically right out of the gate was like, I don't care if I don't kill a buck. I'd prefer it. I'd rather not kill a buck this year. I'm just going to hunt hard and see what happens. And, uh, I want an older or mature buck, something that I'd really feel good about last year. I ended it on a, on a little bit less mature buck. So that's how it, that's how it started off. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, I had an incredible season. I had bucks fighting in front of me at like 20 yards and, uh, just some really cool moments. And if you haven't seen that film, it's I on did. I watched they, that one. I know which one. You yeah. About. Yeah. So the other part to this is that, um, and I haven't really shared this, I guess, anywhere is that I had an autoimmune disorder that cropped up uh, between the 2021 and 2022, and it really knocked me down. Mm. And then I had a knee surgery and, and I, and I tore a disc in my back. So like I had a oh, lot Jesus. of things. Yeah. I had a lot of things going against me and every reason to, to just say like, I'm going to shoot a smaller buck or just like be done with this. But, but I just had in my head, like, you know, I want to work real hard and, and, and not just tag out because I can. And so I overcame those things and I was still limping around up there and like still very, very challenging hunt for me. But then to come away with a mature buck, I met my goal. It was, it was a tough season. And, um, I ended up making a, a longer than I wanted to shot. And, uh, but the buck died within sight. It only went about 20 or 30 yards really. Mm -hmm. Um, and so to come up on that animal and recover it, I was just so overwhelmed with that sense of like overcoming. And when we do that as archers, as hunters, it really makes the whole experience very complete. You feel good about yourself and what you did. And, um, and there's a lot of sacrifice that took place to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, and when we, when we do those things, that's what I would say to the, to the non-hunter or the person that's just getting into it is like, you know, go all in. And it's the, one of the most rewarding activities you could do in your life. I feel like it connects with who humans are made to be. We're made to be resilient. You don't get that every day when, you know, it's no. very mon The average day of life is kind of mundane. You know, humans overall of time had to really figure out how to survive and adapt and overcome. And that's what you feel when you do something like that out in, you know, pretty harsh conditions, pretty harsh terrain. You feel that sense of survival. So that, that was a very overwhelming experience and people can actually then, you know, partake in that story now and see it, how it, you know, takes place. So yeah, that, that's yeah. the one for me. Nice. Yeah. If you guys want to check that out, 
What's your uh, YouTube channel? It's my name, Nathan Endicott, or you can find it by Endicott Films. Yeah, say EndicottFilms.com, right? Don't you have that? And then it just like clicks on over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My Instagram, I have a, I have a like landing page, EndicottFilms.com. Yeah, and you can click on it, and it just basically links you to the YouTube. Well, awesome, man. And uh, if you're recognizing the last name Endicott, um, your dad owns the bow rack. Wayne Endicott. Wayne yep. Endicott. Yep. I'm sure you've heard dad. Cam Cam uh, Haynes talk about him before. <laughs> Endicott Phil, or Farms um, is uh, on their show, The Lift Run Shoot. Kinda nice. Funny. That's awesome. Yep. Well, sweet, man. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, sharing your knowledge with us. And, uh, you know, man, maybe we'll get the chance to hunt together one of these days. Come to That'd Arizona. Awesome. Or maybe I'll, uh, I'll come bother you over there in Oregon. Do it. Yep. Well, appreciate you coming on, man, and uh, enjoy the conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Hey, guys. Thanks for checking out the show. Really appreciate you. Keep those reviews and those comments coming helps us keep this free do me a favor go check out phoenix shooting bags use promo code john stallone to save 20 percent, all one word and check out how for wildlife thank you very much and we'll catch you on the next show